Good afternoon. Thanks so much for being with us on this Friday. Lots to get to this afternoon. We are going to be talking a little bit more about the passing of Prince Philip a bit later on in the program. Also an update on the Canucks, as you likely heard in the news. Uh, The update today being that the players appear to be on the other side, on the mend. Still some issues, though, and some concerns about family members uh, getting uh, infected with COVID-19. We're going to talk a little bit more as well about the current circumstances circuit breaker that is in place. Yesterday, we heard about the circuit breaker grants that are available for businesses. We're going to check in with the Greater Vancouver Board of Trade. First up, though, we are talking about something you might not have thought about, but there appears to be a decline in the number of people who are calling 911. And this has been happening during the pandemic. And joining me to talk a bit more about this is Dr. Frank Schuermeyer, an emergency physician at St. Paul's Hospital, also a scientist at the Centre for Health Evaluation and Outcome sciences. Thank you so much for being with us. You're very welcome. Good morning. What kind of a decline are we seeing as far as percentage? Or do we know how, how much of a drop has there been in calls to 911? Well, when we assess data from early in the pandemic from March to June 2019, the year over year decline was 15%, which is a huge number. Considering there's 2 million emergency department visits in the province every year. So that's a very large number of patients. And do we know, is it because people are afraid that going into a medical environment, going to a hospital or or being in an ambulance would expose them to COVID-19? Well, our data doesn't uh, look at the reasons for people doing that. But anecdotally, we hear a lot of patients are very reluctant to come in for a number of reasons. Firstly, they're obviously scared of getting COVID, and, and rightly so. When, from when our data was taken, we didn't know a lot about it. We know more now. And people were very apprehensive about going in and potentially contracting COVID in the emergency department or in the ambulance even. The other reason is that there were many stories of healthcare systems and hospitals being completely overwhelmed, which never happened in British Columbia. And many patients were very, very reluctant to burden the system any further. Uh, which uh, seems, uh, I mean, it might seem that you're doing a good thing and that you're not going to be taking up a bed or taking up someone's time. But if you have a critical illness or you need immediate care, uh, that's what it's there for. That's absolutely what it's there for. The kind of things we're starting to see now is people that have had three or four months of, say, abdominal pain could have come in, could have seen a physician, but didn't want to for those reasons, maybe. And now they have a a big cancer or something, which is going to be very difficult to treat at this stage. So we're unfortunately seeing a lot more of that. Uh, And when we look at what's out there, and we are uh, kind of inundated, it seems, uh, with information about COVID-19. On the one hand, we want all of the information. We want to know what's happening. Uh, Do you think that it's it's causing more fear, even when we see medical officials uh, tweeting about what they're seeing in the the ERs, what they're seeing, uh, sorry, in the ICUs? Uh, Does that, do you think, does it help people having the information, or is it leading to what we're seeing here with people now frightened to come to a hospital? It can help or it can hurt. Ultimately, uh, you know, people absorb the information they want to absorb. But if they hear enough stories about the hospitals are full, you can catch COVID in a hospital, you're going to get sicker if you go. That's going to discourage people from attending. How do you get the message out there then to let people know that it is safe and there is room for people that need uh, emergency care? 
I think it's what uh, Dr. Henry and Minister Dix mentioned yesterday is that there is room. We do have capacity. And if you have heart disease, lung disease, kidney disease, or you just feel generally unwell, you do need to seek care. I mean, uh, health conditions have not changed since before the pandemic. People will still get sick and we would still like to treat you. Uh, you mentioned that one example of, say, a stomach cancer, and that's just heartbreaking when you think that if somebody had come in when they started feeling pain or started to feel that something was just not right, uh, they could have been treated probably uh, very successfully, uh, but they've let it go uh, t- to that stage. Uh, are there other issues or other conditions where you're also seeing people are simply waiting too long? Well, this is a little bit different, but obviously the other big issue we're seeing in British Columbia, which has been reported on, is uh, the number of overdose deaths. And it becomes much more difficult for people who may be very vulnerable to access care. And as a result, the number of overdose deaths is, is now rising, has risen for the past year. And many of these could probably have been uh, you know, treated or, or had they been able to access care a bit more easily. Um, maybe things wouldn't have been quite as, uh, quite as bad. Those are I'm just mentioning that because those are we have hard statistics on the unfortunate outcomes there. It'll take a long time to sort out all the data of missed cancers, missed diabetes, the impact of mental health uh, that the pandemic has had. Uh, I would imagine, too, when this all started as well, and we saw so many uh, surgeries cancelled, surgeries that were deemed uh, not uh, um, not elective, but th- but they weren't uh, surgeries that were absolutely necessary, and, and the hospitals were cleared out because we didn't know what was going to happen and what kind of capacity we would need. Uh, that might have put a chill into people as well or scared people into thinking it wasn't safe. Absolutely. And often these first impressions that you hear from a year ago stick with you for a long time. These first impressions are very powerful. So even if there's data afterwards suggesting that it is safe to come down, the initial impression may still linger with people. Uh, do you find, I don't know if the, this uh, looked into it or the 15% number that you set off the top, if it's broken down in this way, but do we know uh, the percentage or if we are seeing cases as well? Uh, I mean, one thing to have a, a stomach pain and, and kind of ignore it, maybe not get and, and go about your daily life. Uh, are we finding people though are also uh, things like chest pain, things that could be a heart attack, could be a, a very imminent threat? Are they also not calling 911? Well, we also broke it down into critical illness, uh, people having a major trauma, major stroke, uh, having overwhelming bloodstream infections. And the result, the decline was about 9% there, which is still a, a very large number. Uh, the only uh, conditions for which people, there was an increase was predictably for respiratory conditions and anxiety. Uh, people were more likely to come to the emergency department then. But even for critical illness, um, percent fewer calls, which is a very, very large number. That does seem, and I know we, or, or if we don't know, do, do, can we translate that into an actual number of people? Well, the um, there's 2 million emergency department visits in uh, British Columbia annually, so a 15% decline in ambulance visits is, you know, 100, 150,000 fewer visits. Uh, by ambulance a year. Uh, That's a lot of patients across British Columbia. Those data are only for three months, and the numbers did rise a bit after that. But uh, we're still not back at our pre-pandemic levels of, of emergency department visits. And can you put people's minds at ease or have there been any cases that we know of where somebody has gone into a hospital uh, and and doesn't have COVID, but is there a risk of getting the virus while you're in a medical environment? 
There's been numerous outbreaks in hospitals, unfortunately. So far, none in the emergency department, mainly on the on the hospital wards where people are for a number of days. So it's not entirely, the hospitals are not entirely risk-free, but the chance nonetheless of getting COVID and having a bad outcome from COVID in a hospital is incredibly small. The risk of your chest pain being something very serious is, is not small. So on balance, we would say it is certainly safe to access an ambulance, call 911 and attend the emergency department. And and as well, you mentioned capacity and what we've seen in some other countries. So I know Italy right now is seeing another surge, uh, things not looking great in that country, but it's one where we did see early on in the pandemic, uh, we heard so- stories of hospitals having to, to figure out who would get the ventilators because they didn't have enough for everybody. Um, and again, for people that might be concerned about capacity in hospitals here, and we hear this at the, the news briefings with the health minister and Dr. Bonnie Henry as well. Uh, it sounds like there there is space. People don't really need to worry about that. People do not need to worry. There is lots of space. Uh, have there has there been any change that you know of in, in calling nine one one? You mentioned for anxiety, for respiratory issues. Uh, is there any change in in other reasons why people call nine one one, or we're seeing a difference there? Um, every other uh, when we broke it down to say abdominal pain, chest pain, dizziness. Um, arm or leg pain, um, headaches, those, uh, th- those, those visit categories all drop by substantial amounts as well. So we did break it down into 18 different types of complaints and four types of critical illness complaints. Everything was down substantially uh, except for the respiratory distress and for the uh, anxiety. All right. Well, Dr. Schuermeyer, thank you so much for making some time for us and to talk about this t- t- today. We'll leave it there, but thanks again. You're very welcome. Well, earlier today, the provincial government sent out word that as of June 1st, liquor servers will see their minimum wage boosted to the same level as everyone else. Uh, On that date, the minimum wage goes up by 60 cents for workers to $15.20 an hour. For liquor servers who traditionally also get tips, it is going up by $1.25 an hour. So it will be the same at $15.20. And uh, uh, Labour Minister Harry Baines says he is proud to put an end to what he calls the discriminatory wage for BC liquor servers. Well, joining me now to talk more about this is Jeff Gwinnard, Executive Director of ABLE BC, BC's Alliance of Beverage Licensees. Thanks so much for coming back on the show. Oh, my pleasure. Uh, what is your response to this? Yes, yeah, a bit of frustration, I'll be honest with you. And, you know, to be clear, the decision about limiting the, the liquor server wage, and which, which was based on the idea that minimum wage is different for different people in different positions, right? I mean, it was based on the idea that the average liquor server in British Columbia actually makes closer to $20 an hour. So it wasn't it wasn't seen for a long time as necessary, certainly not discriminatory in the, in the minister's language around this. But the frustrating part for us is, uh, you know, we literally yesterday uh, had an announcement from government where they, they recognize that our industry has been so damaged by this pandemic in recent orders that they're allocating an additional $50 million for our members then we have a reminder of something we already know, right? And the consequence of this, if you look at it, it's you know, it's about an extra $60 a week for folks. Um, and you, you factor that out across the entire industry. You're asking employers to come up with an extra 5 or $6 million. And the government has also been consulting with us this, just yesterday, the same day we had the $50 million announcement. The Minister of Labor was consulting about thinking about looking at um, giving people paid leave to get vaccinated. I mean, you already have a regulatory protection to go get vaccinated. You know, no one in the province is going to lose their job for doing that by asking industry to pay it. I'm like, well, that's 
three hours times 300,000 workers and million labor hours. It's $15 million on top of this. So in the week that, you know, we've gotten some much needed financial support, government's also talking about taking back half of it from industry. And that's so tone deaf uh, that our, our members are, are very frustrated about that kind of an announcement this week when we could have just not done that, right? Could have just reminded us it's happening next week. Right. And and I guess people will look at this as well and think, oh, well, it's it's not that big of a deal. It's only a dollar, uh, less than a dollar if you add in the, the 60 cents that the minimum wage was going up anyway. But I, I'm glad that you put it in that in that context, because when we're talking about every business owner and every employee, uh, that is a big hit to uh, an industry, like you said, that is already reeling. Yeah, if you just just do the math on it, right? I mean, it's a dollar twenty-five an hour for liquor servers times a forty-hour week times one hundred ninety-two thousand workers is ten million dollars. We're asking our industry to come up with every week on this, which um, you know we're not our businesses. If you look at across the fourteen thousand businesses in the hospitality sector now, since last week alone, ninety-nine percent are reporting declines in revenue. We're, we're closed for indoor dining right now. Like our sector was hit first, hit hardest by this, and will be among the last to recover. And at a time when there are other programs in place to support workers. I mean, through the federal wage subsidy, and like we're doing everything we can to have their back. Um, and you know, I, I appreciate the government has made a commitment to increase minimum wage, and that's fine. And they gave us you know a four-year timeline to get through that. But just coming up, reminding it to people right now is not not just about the wrong optic, but it feels particularly insulting to those businesses out there that have been working their tails off to try and keep workers employed and keep people safe. Uh, do you think it was ever, was it a good idea to break the two apart and to make uh, liquor servers uh, in a different category with a different wage? Yeah, you know, minimum wage policy is quite complicated uh, when, when you get through it. And every jurisdiction around it does it a bit differently. Um, all I will say is I think it's important to recognize the reason different bans were created. I mean, I'm not going to argue anybody about what the minimum wage should be, but the reason liquor server wages were, were different or, or some provinces have implemented, for example, a youth minimum wage because, you know, it, you can't compare the struggles and the, the real life experience of a, you know, a mother, a single mom raising three kids on minimum wage to a 16 year old person who's starting in the industry for the first time, but still lives at home, right? They're very different realities. Um, so we long argued that the server differential that was in place was, you know, a dollar or so different. Uh, and it existed because, you know, folks in the liquor server positions who were getting that wage were making substantial amounts of tips, right? And we're not trying to pay anybody less. I mean, we're, we're, people are working their butts off right now, particularly during COVID to adhere to these protocols. And the folks who are servers, they're on the front lines of this every day. I mean, they're, they're, they're trying to save us and get through this pandemic. Um, but yeah, there was a logic for it. And uh, at the end of the day, we, we had disagreed with government because it, it's uh, we're the ones being asked to, to carry that cost yet again, on top of many other cost increases to our business at the exact time when we have record low customers coming in, right? Because we're in the middle of a global pandemic. So sending out a news release today after yesterday's announcement, after being consulted about other cost increases to our business, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to understand where the Minister of Labor is coming from on that. Well, and also given that, and sure, the restrictions are supposed to end April 19th, but there's no guarantee of that. So, I mean, we're talking about this as well, and this is coming out on a day where no one is inside serving liquor to anybody, really, other than, say, on patios. Exactly, yeah. And that's not in remotely uh, the same you know, level of business. I mean, look at outside today here in Vancouver. I mean, you know, let's not forget, we live in a temperate rainforest, right? So patios are part of the solution, but not the only one. You know, your comments about April 19th, and it's, this is interesting. I mean, I, I view it as no better than 50-50 that won't be through this. We did not know indoor dining was going to be shut down even a few days before. The information our provincial health officer and her team to make the decision about April 19th is being collected during this period. So I don't expect to know um, until maybe next Friday at the earliest whether or not that date is the, the correct date. 
Um, we're still convinced that it is safe to drink out and dine out in BC. We've had the right protocols in place for a while, and if Dr. Henry wants us to modify them, we absolutely will. So we're really hoping we can get back to it on uh, the 19th so we can get back to keeping people safe indoors. But, um, you know, we'll, we'll see how it develops in the next couple of weeks. All right, Jeff, we'll leave it there for today. Thanks again for coming back on the show. My pleasure. Stay safe out there. We've been talking a lot about vaccine, the vaccine rollout in this province, and there have been changes, as expected, changes to the timeline. In some cases, people have been bumped up. We talked last week on the program to a woman who happened to get a spot because there'd been a no-show for the vaccine in the pharmacy where she was. But what about people who have had transplant, organ transplants, and some of the more difficult and more serious health concerns? Well, Stuart Stuart Zuckerman joins me on the line now, a kidney transplant recipient, to talk a bit more about that. Stuart, thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for having me. Uh, What is different about uh, how you might be vulnerable to COVID or vulnerable to to more side effects because you are an organ uh, recipient? So um, every morning and every night I take this morning, I think in the morning it's 19 pills, at night it's 15 pills. Um, and, and the majority of those medications are related to uh, suppressing the uh, immune system. Um, uh, and every transplant, every organ transplant recipient takes immunosuppressants every morning and every night in order to prevent the body from attacking the foreign tissue that has been uh, transplanted into your body. So, you know, I received a kidney from somebody else. That's not my tissue. My body sees it as an invader. And in the absence of those immunosuppressants, the body would attack and kill the uh, transplanted organ very quickly. So we take these meds every day to suppress our immune system in order to prevent rejection of the transplanted organ. Um, And studies have shown, and the most recent study published on March 25th, uh, 2021, in the Journal of uh, American Medicine Association uh, from John Hopkins University, those studies show that transplant recipients generally uh, are less, have less than half of the response in terms of forming COVID antibodies after getting uh, the vaccine than the general public. And people like myself who are taking a particular um, immunosuppressant called mycophenolate, and there's another one called Imuran that most organ transplant recipients receive, only 8.75%, so less than 9% of those patients who get the COVID, the first dose of the COVID vaccine, form antibodies uh, from that first dose. And so um, there, there's an issue there, and that is that it's much more important for uh, transplant patients, number one, even after they've received the first vaccine, to be uh, extremely careful about continuing to wear masks and social distancing because they're extremely vulnerable to COVID. Uh, and secondly, it's very important that they get their second dose of the COVID uh, vaccine within the timelines recommended and prescribed by the manufacturers. So Pfizer, Johnson & Johnson, um, uh, Moderna, all of them uh, that have a, a two-dose vaccine uh, say that the second dose should be given in the 8- to 12-week period after the first dose. Now, I just received my vaccine uh, two days ago. Uh, on the 7th of April and uh, at the time of giving me the vaccine they gave me a card and said that I can I can next call up and try to book uh, my second dose uh, on July 27th or later so 16 weeks later I can get my second dose and that's because the BC government uh, is uh, delaying the second dose in order to give more people their first dose now the you know the problem with that for all transplant recipients or anybody who has uh, immunosuppression 
uh, is that if you don't get your second dose in that uh, eight to 12 week period that's recommended, you you have a, a much less efficacy for the second dose to build the uh, the antibodies that you need. So it is vital for transplant patients to get their second dose in that eight to 12 week period. Uh, furthermore, there's many studies that are suggesting um, that transplant patients should get a third dose at the 12 to 16 week period because they need that further boost of their immune system uh, to overcome the immunosuppressants that they're taking. Uh, so I, I, I spoke with an orthopedic surgeon in Israel yesterday who told me that uh, it, the Israeli government has approved uh, third doses for uh, uh, transplant patients in Israel at the 16-week mark, and they're already giving the second dose at the 8- to 12-week mark. So the fact that our government is uh, delaying uh, the second doses for the general population, I understand uh, the efficacy of that and the political expediency of that of trying to get as many people as possible vaccinated uh, with their first dose. But, you know, my the reason I'm calling in and talking about this is I'm I'm hoping to create some public awareness and get the public to advocate uh, for the most vulnerable members of our society, those that, that are immunosuppressed or who have had transplants, to get their second dose at the 8- to 12-week mark rather than uh, at the 16-week or later uh, point because uh, that's simply dangerous for those people. Uh, have you had any response? Uh, I'm, I'm guessing when the provider, when the, when you got the vaccine, you might have mentioned it, or I know you've written to Dr. Bonnie Henry as well. Have you had any response to your concerns? I, I haven't. I, I have spoken with, uh, I did speak, the, the fellow that gave me the uh, the vaccine was a retired anesthesiologist, and he agreed with me. He thought everybody should be getting their second dose in the 8- to 12-week point, but he said, you know, it's, this is simply what's happening. And then I, I spoke with uh, a, a very senior person uh, in the BC, uh, trans, in the kidney transplant uh, area uh, at St. Paul's uh, about it, um, and he is advocating for that, and he agreed uh, fully with the comments that I put in the letter that I sent to you and that I copied or I copied to you that I, I sent to uh, Bonnie Henry. Uh, he agreed with all those comments and the studies that show that uh, it is uh, vital for transplant patients to get their uh, second dose in the 8 to 12 week point. And he says he's advocating for that. But um, but he says it's a political decision at this point, not a medical one. And I was told a very similar thing uh, by a Surrey senior uh the kidney transplant doctor yesterday uh, who I spoke to, but I've been trying to see if I can find a doctor who's willing to come on the air or speak to somebody to, to advocate, but there seems to be resistance in the medical community to, to speak publicly about the issue, but they are advocating uh, within the government. But, I, but it sounds futile from the response that I'm getting that, that the decision has been made that it's simply going to be a second dose in 16 weeks and no exceptions are being made. Um, so that's why, you know, that's why I'm reaching out and I'm, I'm hoping that the public will email Bonnie Henry or their MLA or call their MLA and uh, ask that the BC government uh, consider uh, protecting uh, our vulnerable uh, transplant uh, organ recipients. I mean, the, the government spends hundreds of thousands, I'm sure it's in the millions collectively, uh, but it's, it may be close to 100,000 or more per patient for the surgery, for the transplant surgery, if you have a heart or a lung or a kidney or pancreas or liver transplant, all of those surgeries are very expensive. And then the medications that I take every day are paid for by the government, and they're extremely expensive uh, medications, those immunosuppressants. I, I, years ago, I remember being told that the cost is many thousand dollars per month per patient uh, for those immunosuppressants. So if the government is investing millions of dollars uh, every year, on uh, and there's currently 5,500 
uh, transplant patients in BC uh, being uh, being uh, treated uh, by uh, the government for uh, post transplant care. Um, you would think the government, having made that investment, would then say, "Okay, we don't want to risk these vulnerable patients." becoming a further burden on the medical system and needing perhaps rejecting their organs because of COVID or needing a second or a third uh, transplant uh, at an entirely new cost again to the government uh, because they didn't get their vaccine at, at eight weeks or 12 weeks instead of and, and being de- delayed off to 20 weeks or 16 weeks. So, um, you know, it just seems to me that it would be common sense that the government would, would have an interest in uh, in moving up the uh, vaccination dates for uh, transplant patients and allowing them to get their second doses early and considering a third dose if their physician is recommending in that particular case that the person needs a third booster to protect their immune system. And to be clear, we're talking specifically transplant uh, patients, and I think you mentioned the number 5,500 in BC, because I would imagine that people would hear this and say, well, what about uh, there's other uh, conditions where you're immunocompromised and there are conditions where you might be more vulnerable, but specifically in this case about making the antibodies, uh, you're calling on this specifically for transplant patients. I am. I, I, I haven't yet read studies, and I'm not a medical doctor myself, but I, you know, I, I read the study that deals specifically with transplant patients, and I assume that other immunosuppressed people may also, it, it's probably vital for them to get their second shot in that 8 to 12 week period. But the, the, the particular issue with transplant patients is every one of us, as I said, every morning and every night, we take drugs to turn off our immune system, and those drugs specifically prevent the, the production of the uh, COVID um, antibodies when we get the first vaccine shot. And, and what the studies show is that if you get the second vaccine shot at the eight-week period, while you still have the first vaccine shot in your system, it promotes a greater response for the COVID antibodies. And then again, if you get a third booster at the, at the 16-week mark or 12 to 16-week mark, that may further um, improve the production of antibodies. So you're then giving the, the the transplant recipients the same shot as the rest of the population at developing antibodies and being protected from uh, from COVID. Uh, whereas other immunosuppressed people, uh, I, I presume, uh, may need the booster shot at the right time period, but they're not taking immunosuppressants every day to turn off their immune system, um, which is the further burden that transplant patients have. All right. Well, Stuart, we will follow up and see if there are any updates with this. But thanks so much for taking the time and for talking about this today. Appreciate it. I appreciate you having me on. Thank you very much. All right, that music is, uh, once again, we are talking a bit more about the passing of Prince Philip. And if you haven't heard, well, uh, then you haven't been paying attention to the news because there has been much, much coverage after news broke this morning that Prince Philip, husband to the Queen, father of Prince Charles and three other children, died at the age of 99. His life was defined by his marriage to Queen Elizabeth II. Born into the Greek royal family and exiled from Greece, soon after, Philip eventually landed in England. He joined the British Royal Navy at age 18. Soon after, he met Princess Elizabeth. He started a correspondence with the future queen and the rest, as they say, is history. Elizabeth's ascension to the throne in 1952 changed everything. Philip spent the rest of his life forced to walk two paces behind the sovereign. Lama Hassan, ABC News, London.
Well, we wanted to take a little time to look at his life. And again, he uh, was the longest living, uh, longest uh, living British uh, consort in history. And I think he got that title back in 2008, 2009. Uh, we wanted to look at his time in the military and some of his passions through life. So joining me on the line now is John Craig, who is an SFU history professor. John Craig, thanks so much for being with us. Oh, a pleasure to chat with you, Jill. Uh, we've reached you. I, I know you're in the UK now as well. Uh, must be uh, as much as this was expected, uh, I think, and we knew that this was going to be happening at some point. Uh, still uh, a shock and a very sad day for a lot of people. Yes, that's exactly right. Um, as you say, it's not unexpected. Um, Prince Philip had been unwell, um, but many folk were hoping that he was going to make it to his 100th birthday. And uh, sadly, that wasn't to be. But nevertheless, it's one of those things that when the news actually comes through, you all pause for a minute because you realize that actually something quite historic is, is taking place. So, yes, there's a lot of coverage over here. Where Right now, I'm in North Devon, a very quiet part of, of England. I came over on research leave. The pandemic hit. Wham! And I've stayed here ever since. But, um, yes, there's a lot of coverage, as you would expect, on the television, on the radio, um, and uh, um, as, a result of, as a result of the sad news. It's a great, it's a huge blow for, for the Queen and for her family, um, somebody who has been enormously supportive to her for 73 years. Remarkable. When we look back at the history as well and the the life of Prince Philip, uh, I was even just going back and looking at at some of reading some about his earlier days. I had forgotten so much, uh, but really, a, a man with such a, an amazing past, going all the way back to being born into the Greek and Danish royal families, uh, born in Greece, his family exiled from that country, uh, and then his life from that point on. And and a lot of people I know really focusing on when he first joined the British. Royal Navy, uh, age 18, and that's when he met uh, Elizabeth, uh, who I think was 13 at the time. That's right, that's right. And uh, you obviously, um, I don't know if she caught his eye, um, but um, he, um, or if I, if, if I'm not sure if I mixed that up, he certainly caught her eye. I don't know whether or not she caught his eye, but I think he, he must have, uh, I mean, he must have known um, in whose company he was um, spending some time. Um, yeah, he had a very tough childhood in many, many ways, in many ways, and, but was taken in by the English side of the family. Lord Louis Mountbatten was hugely important. Um, you know, I think one thing that people will be reflecting on the, in the days to come is the extent to which, as a relative outsider, I mean, it really was a love match, um, they get married in 1947. Um, Elizabeth was hugely in love with him. But he was a modernizer in this really quite traditional family, um, and over the course of the 1950s and the 1960s in particular. And in part, I think, because he knew that monarchies um, were not um, necessarily the most stable of institutions, given his own experience um, in the Greek and Danish uh, royal families. So. Um, in many ways, I think, uh, you know, 10 years from now, 20 years from now, even now, I think we're, we, we see the extent to which his role in the British royal family has been to actually uh, breathe new life into it in the 1950s and 1960s in particular. 
And what would you look at as an example of that? Because you're right, and a lot of people have been looking at that as his role as well as this support person for the Queen, and and he did so many other things as well. What would you look to as far as examples of how he did breathe new life into that family? I think that he took a leading role. It was somewhat controversial at the time, this famous television documentary that came out in the late 60s. But it was his conviction that um, the royal family needed to offer a, a human face to, uh, to the public. And in a number of ways, I think, looking at household accounts in the 1950s, you know, there are certain things that he tried to advocate for. He wasn't terribly happy that his kids weren't going to have his family name, uh, Mountbatten, um, Windsor, prevailed. So he lost certain battles, right? But um, he was he was somebody who, he was a very forceful character, um, spoke his mind, um, sometimes quite um, in ways that, that gave offense. But he was a kind of natural leader who suppressed his leadership qualities to be this tremendous stay and support to the, the crown. But I think that um, in particular, I think the use of, of media, smart use of media in, um, in the 1960s, but also, I think, actually simply asking questions. Well, what is my role? Remember, he had no constitutional role, right? Unlike um, the constitutional role that Queen Victoria's husband, Prince Albert, played, um, Philip had no constitutional role. He was the consort, right? Um, and, uh, and, but... I think that um, you know, he is going to be remembered enormously for um, his tremendous support for the Queen, but also the way in which, let's say, on the issue around the environment, I mean, he, he took a leading role when it came to uh, conservation early on, early on. And um, even though people over in the UK, we naturally think of David Attenborough, right? Mm-hmm. But uh, uh, the Duke of Edinburgh played a very important role, I think, providing opportunities for young people. The Duke of Edinburgh Award Scheme was very, very important um, throughout the Commonwealth. Um, there'll be Canadians, people in BC who did the uh, Duke of Edinburgh Award Scheme. Um, certainly um, thousands, tens of thousands of young people in, uh, in the UK, but across the Commonwealth. Um, and in particular, I think, you know, he's a great athlete. His love for sports, it's, um, it, it's, it's not for nothing that various sporting venues over the next few days are going to be marking his, uh, his passing with a minute or two minutes of silence. Continuing now, we are talking about the passing of Prince Philip. And just before I get back to our guest, John Craig, who's an SFU history professor, wanted to play this story for you because you may have forgotten or may not have known just how much Prince Philip was involved with sporting organizations. And this has been a lot. There has been a lot of talk about this today as well. And sports venues in Britain are marking Prince Philip's death. A two minute silence was held at cricket matches in England's county championship and at the Grand National Horse Racing Meeting to mark the death of Prince Philip at age 99. Cricket is the sport he was most associated with as president for two terms of the Lords-based Marleybone Cricket Club, which is regarded as the guardian of the laws of the game. 
Philip was also an honorary member of the MCC in cricket and the Jockey Club, which owns racecourses in Britain. A silence was held before the start of racing on the second day of the Grand National Meeting at Aintree. Charles Duladesma, London. Uh, Prince Philip also played polo until 1971. He started to compete in carriage driving, which is a sport that he helped to expand. Uh, He was also a keen yachtsman, and uh, the list goes on and on. He was actually... Uh, taking part in. He was uh, a member of about 800 different sporting organizations. That in addition to all of the other things that he was doing uh, with his life as well. Uh, Let's bring John Craig back, SFU history professor. And John, quite amazing to look at that, his dedication not only to sport, also to young people uh, with scholarships and making sure that they had these opportunities uh, as well. Yes, absolutely. I think that he, he loved his contact uh, with the young. It, uh, and look at the way in which, you know, over uh, as we, we've been in this pandemic, I think he's been spending quite a bit of time um, before his most recent illness up at the uh, Royal Estate in Norfolk, up in Sandringham. Um, and you might remember that it was, what, a few years ago that still perhaps at the age of 96, um, he was involved in, um, thankfully, it was not a terrible car crash. Um, no one was killed. But uh, that's a measure of the determination of the man that um, he still wanted to remain active and still did remain active. I mean, I think really he only stepped down from his, his formal uh, royal duties only a couple of years ago. But, you know, just coming back to young people, one of the reasons why I think he was somebody who was so dedicated to duty was that he had this huge interest in, um, in the younger generation's in particular in terms of the kinds of uh, athletic or physical uh, challenges that um, could be sort of life-changing in so many ways, right? He took a strong, strong interest in that. And do you think that's where we see as well, when he was such, uh, again, with the the Duke of Edinburgh Awards, uh, helping young people, uh, do you think we see that in Prince Harry with the Invictus Games, that he had such an impression on his family and the way people looked up to him? Oh, very much so, I think. Very much so. It, it's, it's going to be interesting just to see how, um, how, just what happens over the next few days in terms of Prince Harry and, uh, uh, you know, this is for the family to, to, to decide. But I have no doubt in my mind that uh, the relationship between Philip, the grandfather, both William and Harry, was a very, very strong relationship, yes. Uh, because it is interesting as well looking at his his military history and kind of who he was before uh, the marriage to Elizabeth and then he became so involved even with uh, the uh, the engagement of Charles and Diana he was certainly involved with that he's been very involved with his grandchildren with his four children uh, it's it just seems like so much to him uh, that uh, that that I may I mean so much that we don't know as well that's happened behind closed doors but he just seemed like I don't know if, if well-rounded individual is the right way to put it, but it seems like it. Yes, yes. I think that, like, as in, as in any family, there, are, um, there, can be, there can be tensions and difficulties. So it's, I think, quite well known, for example, that um, Philip's own schooling in this rather austere boarding school up in Scotland, Gordonston, um, that... Whereas Philip loved his time there and, in fact, you know, grew and matured as a young man and went from Gordonston then into the Navy uh, to Dartmouth, where he excelled. Um, but insisting on Charles to go to 
Gordonston, um, as he did, clearly wasn't uh, a great success. And, um, you know, I do think that it's reported that, you know, the kids say, uh, the four children he had with uh, the Queen, um, that they got compassion from their mother, but they got discipline and duty, a sense of duty from Philip. I think that's right. I think that's right. I mean, really, in many ways, you know, he's of the generation. We remember, I mean, an enormously privileged background, even though a very, very troubled childhood, because essentially his own family fell apart. I mean, you can, you know, his, uh, his mother is, I don't think she was actually ever a schizophrenic, but she was diagnosed with, she essentially had a nervous breakdown. Um, then the, the parents separated. Um, one sister, an older sister, died tragically. And, you know, he's kind of left without a family. But as he himself said, you, you have to get on with things. That's very much, I think, of my father's generation, sort of the generation born in 1920, 1925, 1930, um, who experienced the war. And, um, and this strong sense, obviously, many, many families have all kinds of different backgrounds. But um, I think going through testing times, especially during the war years, uh, the, instilled in many who rose to that challenge that actually it was very important, as the, as the saying goes over here, you know, to keep calm and carry on. And there's no question, I think, Jill, that in many ways, his own personal ambitions, he would have, you know, he, I think, there's no doubt, he would have made an enormously successful career in, uh, in the Royal Navy. But um, he had to place on one side uh, personal career and ambitions in order to um, do a job of being um, the most supportive um, consort to, uh, to the present monarch. And when you look at this life of service, how many countries he's, um, he's visited and that those years of service went up right up until perhaps a couple of years ago, um, sort of unflagging. It's, it's really quite a remarkable uh, life of public service. Uh, you know, he'll be remembered for that. It will uh, indeed. John, we'll leave it there for today, but thank you so much for joining us to talk about this. I really appreciate it. Uh, a, a pleasure to chat. All right, we are talking about a fossil discovery and how this could have an impact on the snake fly mystery. What is this, you ask? Well, fear not. My next guest is here to explain it all. Bruce Archibald is an SFU Biological Sciences Research Associate and joins me on the line. Thanks so much for being with us. Well, thanks for having me on, Jill. I've got to say the modern snake fly, a picture of the modern snake fly, it's, well, I guess beauty is all in the eye of the beholder, but it doesn't <laughs> look, uh, it looks a little creepy to me. Uh, yeah, I don't know. It looks to me like kind of like a science fiction jet or something. It's kind of got that sleek elegance, but you know, maybe it's an entomologist's viewpoint. <laughs> exactly. So what is this fossil yeah. discovery and how important is this? Well, it's another piece of the puzzle of how animals and plants, how life uh, distributes itself across the globe, how different climates might affect where things live. Uh, we're looking at myself and, and colleagues and partners are looking at, at the, uh, the life in ancient British Columbia about 50 million years ago and looking at how all of these things that are alive today, where they live today and how they live then and, and the difference in climate. So we're trying to understand how climate might affect the distribution of life on Earth. These are inter these snake flies are interesting because they're part of a group of animals that only live in the more temperate 
mid-latitude, say, you know, across North America, Europe, and through, uh, you know, Russian Asia, that sort of land. And they don't make it down into the tropics like a lot of things do. And that's been a mystery. Like, why do these things live there and not thrive in the tropics like many things do? And a lot of people, the main theory has been that they require uh, frost days. They require really cold winters in order to trigger development into adults. And that seems really reasonable, given all of the species that we have today. But we find them in British Columbia and northern Washington as fossils 50 million years ago, where there wasn't cold winters, where there probably would have only needed a light sweater on the coldest day of the year. And so what this means is that these, this whole group of insects must have independently evolved a tolerance or a, a need, perhaps, for cold winters sometime later after that. So we get to a, a, a really good view of the evolutionary process that changes how animals and plants interact with climate. Uh, Talk a bit, if you can, about the discovery of these fossils and uh, in the Driftwood Canyon in B.C. What was that like? Well, fossils, actually, there's a series of fossil sites that cover about a thousand kilometers from Smithers up at Driftwood Canyon Provincial Park down across the border to uh, Washington, just across uh, Washington state line. These were all little lake beds, so they're tiny little sites scattered across that thousand kilometers and the lakes filled up with sediment, the mud in the bottom, and, and in that mud, the things from the surrounding forests were preserved. And uh, it's so one of the ones from uh, up near in the middle of the Caribou around Horsefly River area was actually found at the, about 100 years ago, over 100 years ago. And the uh, Geological Survey of Canada people sent it off to the only expert at the time, who was Anton Handlers in Vienna. And handlers described this insect, which is uh, was kind of neat. And so we looked at it and we said, well, you know, with our modern knowledge and, and what we know now, we can re-describe it and understand some new things about it. So I asked the people at the Geological Survey in Ottawa to send out the fossil, and, and I looked at it. And I worked on it with my uh, partner in Russia, Vladimir Makarkin. And uh, so we were able to understand this fossil that was found, well, during the gold rush, actually, by gold rush miners way back when. Hmm. And uh, other ones, uh, some of them I found myself at some of these fossil sites, uh, Driftwood Canyon or at the Maccabee site near Cache Creek. And then I visited uh, northern Washington to a, a small town museum there in Republic, and they had some they have fossils in their collections that I look at regularly. So it means a lot of travel through the interior, which has been a great pleasure of this job, actually, getting to know British Columbia's interior. And you mentioned as well, so this these fossils show, what was it, 52 million years ago and kind of how this snake fly uh, has evolved. Does it give us uh, any other information or does it point us uh, in other ways to what else was going on and why we've seen uh, some species evolve and seen things change? We, what I'm doing is I'm looking at the community as a whole. Each insect adds another picture, adds another sort of uh, point to the, uh, to the overall picture. And once we gather this overall picture together of all the different insects, we can, we can see a lot about how things shifted across continents, for example, some things that are 
found uh, in British Columbia that are also uh, found in East East Asia, in uh, you know Pacific coastal Russia. Some things that migrated across the North Atlantic region to uh, Europe at that time. Some things that are only found today in Australia, for example. So the snake flies help with the big picture. They're all they're all like like fingerprints and in a in a big story of how life has changed on earth and one of the important parts about it is that this is all coming after the extinction of the dinosaurs extinction of the dinosaurs is about 66 million years ago so we're looking at a time when life had bounced back and recovered from that huge extinction event and was st- it's like hitting reset on your computer it comes back refreshed and the world was beginning to become modern and, and the forests that we would have seen then about 50 million years ago in BC uplands had familiar things in it like spruce and maples and pines, but mixed in an odd community. So you'd see palm trees along with the spruce trees. So this is the deal. We have a very different climate at the dawn of the modern world and communities are organized in different ways. And when we add up all of these individual kinds of living things, Hopefully we can get a picture and understand how these processes work today. Does it give you an idea, too, in the, the snake fly and with its its elongated body and what it looks like? So you know or you're, you're mm-hmm. trying to figure out why it lives where it does today, what, what prompted this evolution. Do we know if they're important to have? Are, are they an important part of, of the bigger picture or would there be a problem if the snake fly didn't evolve and went extinct? Actually, these are very much like our modern ones. I've seen ones that look, well, you see the, the picture in the press release where the, the fossil one looks almost exactly like the modern one. So they're very much like the modern ones today. They're not a big group today. They're kind of a, a small sort of fringe group. But what they're telling us here is part of, another part of what they're telling us is that some organisms, as the climate changed, winters got colder in our latitudes, moved south. Others of them evolved the ability to withstand cold winters. And a third group would have just couldn't handle it and went extinct. So this is part of that group, which apparently uh, evolved a different tolerance since then. But uh, yeah, they exist. They live here where we are. You could, might even find one in your backyard and, and they're, they're eat pests. They're beneficial insects or anyone wanting to do uh, organic gardening or anything. Uh, so what do you do next? You mentioned uh, that you've done uh, some uh, extensive traveling in the interior uh, following up on this. What's next uh, in this storyline? Well, I'm not do- traveling very much these days. No. With, uh, COVID and all, uh, which ironically has actually uh, forced me to sit inside and just write and write. So I've been getting a lot of, uh, a lot of scientific papers out. It's been actually forcing high production rate but i'm working right now on some a group of insects which kind of look like locusts like big grasshoppers which were apparently extinct about 100 million years ago in the early cretaceous in the time of the dinosaurs but now we see them in british columbia about half that age about 50 million years ago thriving with plenty of species and so that's a new finding as well this thing is, is that these fossil beds 
were vastly understudied because British Columbia, and especially the interior, was one of the last coastal temperate regions thoroughly explored because we were remote for so long. And and think about how hard it would have been to travel through the interior before uh, Fly and Phil Gillardy put in the highway system. So, um, you know, there's a lot of fossil sites of this age in continental USA and Europe, which were well known, you know, 150, 200 years ago. But ours are, are now still just being explored, and it's the golden age of discovery, so to speak. So there's lots, there's lots to learn, and it's going to tell us lots about how we became, how our world became what it is. Well, I look forward to learning more about that in the future. We'll leave it there for today, though. Bruce, thank you so much for joining us to talk more about this. Well, thanks for having me on, Jill, anytime.